Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary Media with me, Russell Brand. This week I spoke to top psychiatrist and professor emeritus or emeritus or emeronym of paediatrics, Dr. Tom Boyce. Tom works at the University of California, San Francisco, and he's the author of The Orchid and the Dandelion, Why Some Children Struggle and How All Can Thrive. Although that's not what my script says, because there's an error in it. It's a really good episode. I think you're going to really enjoy it. Personally, I'd like to promote the event I'm doing in Calgary on the 15th of June. Two fantastic stand-up comedy shows. All proceeds go to the Fresh Start Recovery Centre. That's in Calgary, 15th of June, 1 at 6pm, 1 at 9 p.m. If you want to come and see me, and I really, really want you to, go russellbrand.com and uh, I'll see you there. Also, if you want to see me live in Los Angeles, uh, keep an eye on my social media and on the website for tickets. I'm doing a lot of shows at Wanderlust, the Yoga Center. I'm doing a lot of interesting things. Also, have a look at the YouTube channel for spiritual, political, social commentary videos. Uh, subscribe because it really helps. Five videos a week, and if you subscribe to it, Russell Brand's the name of the channel, then uh, nothing will go on there that you're not informed of, and it will help me to negotiate a better deal with YouTube. That's my daughter. Also, Mentors is available as an audiobook on Kindle or on hardback in the US and Canada. And my comedy special, Rebirth, is on Netflix. Also, this Sunday, the 2nd of June, I will be in Pasadena signing books. I'm going to be at Roman's Bookstore on the 2nd of June at, I think, 1 o'clock. If you want more details, have a look at my website. My daughter's taking the microphone. Uh, and uh, Rebirth is on Netflix, where I talk about the birth of the baby that's even now grabbing this microphone. You're not saying anything. Why do you need the microphone if you've got nothing to say, baby? What are you doing, mate? That's my other daughter. I'm surrounded by daughters everywhere I look. Thank you for your comments on the uh, Jamila Jamil podcast. You really enjoyed it, and I found meeting her a tremendous pleasure. Uh, Leo Alexandra says, I love that Jamila Jamil as an actress before, but I'm obsessed with her as an intellectual after hearing her on hashtag under the skin podcast. Ironically, Tom Boyce is an expert in paediatrics and uh, you can see why his advice with childcare and child behaviour might be so well sought after. He provided a lot of information, some of it I've not been able to put into action yet. Rosanna Souza said, bold and vulnerable, loved it. Alex Maria H, your point about the human brain being treated as a machine is interesting because I do wonder about how if EMDR removed our negative associations with our brain connecting with the process, is it just removing the symptom of a larger problem without us understanding why the issue was there in the first place? What if we remove something that we realise we need? Can we get it back? Interesting topic. Thanks, guys. Yeah, I suppose so, but I suppose the assumption is that neurosis is a kind of malfunction, but you're right, when dealing with something as complex as neurology, when psychiatry and psychology become neurology, you realise what a complicated place consciousness and identity and persona are. If that's the right way to form that. My Ab 7. The rapport between you both was truly tangible and titillating. Yes, I love Jamila. She's a brilliant person. Listen to this episode on a coach home from Cardiff while making the person next to me uneasy as I'd spontaneously burst into laughter, specifically during the anecdote of Jamila wearing the rubber ring as she's broken her ass. Great story that was. What a joy you both are. Well, I hope you will enjoy listening to Dr. Tom Boyce, child expert, behavioural expert, scientist and... Now, he's on my speed dial as I tackle 
the limitless challenge of being a father of daughters. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful that, route. Yes, that's, that's, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand Under the Skin. Professor Tom Boyce, thanks very much for joining us on Under the Skin. Um, I'm very grateful to you for coming. My understanding is that you are a the leading professor in paediatrics and behaviour, uh, sort of that there is. So like uh, I've got two children, but we were just talking before uh, we resolved our technical difficulties in um, what the political implications of your analysis of the types of children and the conditions that children require to grow up healthy and whole, um, how how that analysis might play out politically. But first of all, I wonder if you could give us a sort of an idea of a, a brief understanding of the work you do. Uh, I'm referring to the dandelions and orchid metaphor that you are best known for, and then we can perhaps unpack the way that might play out politically. Yeah, good. I'm delighted to be here, by the way. Hey, thanks. We're <laughs> thrilled you came from San Francisco to see us in our garden. Yeah, well, it's a beautiful garden. It's lovely here. Um, so I think the first point is that what we have been discovering over the last decade and a half is that in addition to all the other things that seem to influence child health and development, all the things like, you know, social class and the presence or absence of um, infectious pathogens and kids' exposure to um, physical toxins in the environment and the kind of diets that they have. In addition to all of those diverse things that we know affect uh, child health, we've, we've finally discovered that there is uh, a really important factor that's missing from that list, which is um, children's experiences of adversity and trauma. Um, and we now know that um, that those kinds of experiences in, in young kids, particularly very young kids, um, have powerful effects on uh, their well-being and their development over those initial years of life. Um, we know that those experiences don't just stay in childhood. They, they continue on into adulthood and they have effects decades later. Um, and we're also learning that um, there are pretty profound differences in children's uh, reactions and responsivity um, to those experiences. Um, and the essence of the work that my colleagues and I have been doing really over the last 25, 30 years is exploring these uh, differences between children in how they react to and uh, respond to, in terms of their health and their development, these kinds of experiences of toxic stress and and uh, adversity. How on earth do you study that? Ah, uh, well, we that's we pondered that a long time before we figured out how to do that. Um, we bring children into uh, laboratory circumstances. We sit them down in front of a previously unknown examiner. And we ask, that examiner asks them to do a series of uh, mildly but definitively stressful tasks 
for young kids. So these might be things like uh, repeating back a series of digits that the examiner says to the child, or having the child watch an emotion-evoking video clip of some kind. What, like? Oh. It's like a film. Yeah, like a film. Like a, a children's film. Like in when Ferdinand the bull... His dad gets taken away, and I see my little daughter's face. She suddenly she walks away. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. They're very evocative for for kids, um, but we also do things like putting a drop of lemon juice on the tongue. So it's not all just emotion and you know cognition. It's also physical things as well. Um, so we do that in a very standardized, predictable way. It's almost scripted with each child. And as we're doing that, we're measuring the peripheral uh, changes that are manifestations of the two um, principal stress response systems in the human brain. Um, one is the cortisol system, which produces the stress hormone uh, cortisol, which, as you know, has these powerful effects on the immune system and the cardi cardiovascular system. And the other is the fight or flight um, system. Um, the so-called autonomic nervous system, which is responsible for um, the sweaty palms and tremulousness and high heart rate that we get when we're under pressure or, or uh, stress of, of one kind or another. Is that adrenal or am I simplifying it? It's, it, it is uh, adrenal. It, it's the gland that sits on top of the kidney and puts out um, cortisol, but it also puts out these other stress hormones that increase your heart rate um, change your immune system, um, make your palms sweaty and your eyes dilated. With the biological assumption being that these kind of stressful stimuli require response, a heightened response, and these are the biochemical responses that facilitate that. Exactly. And, and children vastly differ in their, in their responsivity within those two systems. What, what, what did you observe? What's the main thing you observed? Well, we, we, by doing this, we, we get this measure of children's reactivity to stress in the laboratory. We can then take that measure and we can move it out into the real world, to, to the natural world that the child experiences and observes, where, you know, there's an abundance of adversity and stress that every child experiences as well. So we can use this very standardized laboratory measure of reactivity to stress and see how that changes children's health and developmental consequences when they're exposed to naturally occurring stressors. You know, things like um, parents getting a divorce or lots of marital conflict or um, the parent having a mental disorder of one kind or another. Um, and we find that, A, most of the children um, have pretty modest responses in the laboratory to those challenges that we put them to. Um, and those kids, as you might, you might expect, when they're in the real world and they're, they're experiencing naturally occurring either safety or stress, they have about the same health and developmental outcomes, irrespective of the kinds of experiences that they're having in the real world. But by contrast to that, that the kids that we call orchid children are the high reactivity kids who seem to have either the best outcomes or the worst outcomes, uh, depending upon the kind of social context that they're being reared in. So the, the, the orchid children who um, are being reared in stressful, traumatic environments 
they have far and away the worst outcomes of any of the kids that we study. But the kids who are also orchid children, but who are living in protected, loving, caring uh, family and community environments, they don't just have medium levels of outcome. They're the healthiest of all the children in our studies. So they have either the worst or the best outcomes, depending upon social context. Orchid children can be understood <clears throat> to be highly sensitive. And so sensitivity can either lead to sort of strong trauma response and mental deterioration or excellence. Then, yeah, exactly. That- it's, you can think of it as permeability, as having thin skin. Um, and what, com- what gets in through that skin is either the bad stuff or the good stuff that a child experiences. How long do, in your case studies, do you track individuals or groups? Well, we, for the book, we did one chapter that was where we, um, we looked back uh, at, a, at the kids that we had studied in preschool like 30 years ago. Wow. Yeah. And we were we had a great research assistant who was able to track down um, these kids, and we had uh, we had four kids who were orchid children and four kids who were dandelion children from low stress and high stress settings back then. So we had kind of exemplary cases eight eight kids uh, that we had information on over three decades of their of their lives, and. Here's my assumptions that the high-stress orchid kids are drug addicts and in prison. No, they're not not that bad. <laughs> but but they're they are kids who are um, more involved in um, kind of marginal social uh, behavior. Um, there there was one that has had developed trouble with alcoholism. Um, there's another that has uh, you know despite being you know, now in his mid-30s, just hasn't quite found his way. He's kind of continued to be lost. Um, Whereas the kids who were back then, 30 years ago, orchid children in the lab, who were being brought up in families that really cared for them and nurtured them in a variety of ways, those kids are just doing phenomenally. One's an actor. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, I forget what the other one was, but... uh, yeah, to hell with that non-famous orchid. <laughs> <laughs> hey, my um, when we're talking about like the sort of stress, in the the stress level of the original environment, are we essentially talking about socio socioeconomic factors? Like, is a stressful environment? There's not enough money. There's only one parent. I think welfare. That's, that's certainly one. Um, you know, the, the kids that we've just been talking about, the, the eight kids that we studied 30 years ago, they were all relatively middle-class kids living in the Bay Area. Um, so none of them would be characterized as impoverished in terms of their family socioeconomic status. But certainly poverty can be one of the kind of adversities that children uh, face. Did you, try, did you limit the scope of their social background in order to provide some consistency is you know is did you choose not to have some kids from economically underprivileged backgrounds wealthy backgrounds in order so there was at least some because there must be so much ver- when looking at behavior i mean in general there must be you're dealing with such phenomenal variants i would assume yeah that it must be hard to track 
Yeah, but, you know, the way that we actually originally identified these kids that we studied 30 years ago was they were all enrolled in a in a preschool in San Francisco. So we enrolled from that preschool. And because they were in that preschool, they were all relatively middle-class kids. Mm-hmm. But we certainly had evidence in really impoverished families and even in really wealthy families um, that the same kind of principles hold. I see. Firstly, from a parenting perspective, because I am a father to two young children, what uh, do you advise parents when, firstly, how do you make the diagnosis between that, like as a parentally, as opposed to scientifically, how do you make that diagnosis between dandelion and orchid? And what are the accompanying parenting techniques that you would recommend? Yeah. Presumably dandelion, just leave them on their own. (laughs) (laughs) Give them $100 and a gun, say get out there and make your fortune. Well, thankfully, the things that seem to be good for orchid children are also good for dandelion children. It's just that the the orchid children derive so much more benefit from these kind of parenting strategies that we've identified than do the the dandelion children. Um, But your, your first question about how do we how do we recognize an orchid or a dandelion children independent of you know having them come into a psychophysiology laboratory there there are um, some kind of earmarks uh, that we've noticed clinically that uh, seem to characterize the two different kinds of kids so um, dandelion children uh, tend to be um, pretty outgoing uh, they they have a strong component of extroversion um, they don't generally hesitate to move into novel circumstances where their challenges, um, uh, their you know, their the challenges of those circumstances don't seem to overwhelm them. They they do well in in novel circumstances, and they have this phenomenon of having kind of even levels of of health and development, independent of of the kind of family or community that they're growing up in. Orchid children are often, though not universally, shy. Uh, They tend to to be more behaviorally inhibited. Um, They have um, sensory hypersensitivities, um, so they may be kids who have just powerful, um, aversive responses to certain tastes or to loud noises. Um, I had one kid that I saw clinically who really had a hard time going out into public spaces because anytime he had to use the bathroom, the flushing of a public toilet was just overwhelming to him because of the noise. That's an example of a, a sensory hypersensitivity. My, my own orchid child, my daughter, Amy, um, used to... Um, she just couldn't stand having her socks wrinkled inside of her shoes, you know? <laughs> she couldn't stand that. So these kind of tactile and uh, other kind of sensory um, experiences, they're more sensitive in those domains. And they tend to be kids who, rather than plunging ahead into novel circumstances, they tend to withdraw from novel circumstances. How? At what point, what stage were you at with your studies and research when you had your own children and how did it affect you in both as a parent and as a scientist yeah well one of the downsides of being the the uh, child of a pediatric scientist is that you instantly become a guinea pig and in fact when we were developing these laboratory 
tests of, of stress reactivity. Um, my daughter Amy and my my colleague uh, my colleague's daughter were both our first guinea pigs, um, bringing them into the lab, you know, having them do this and having them do that, measuring this and measuring that, and they really helped us put together um, the 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 protocol that we ended up with. Yeah, well, like things like because that you know arriving at the point of oh what happens if you give them some lemon what happens if you make them recite numbers right. yeah or show them a clip from a film or make them put on a wrinkled sock yeah like it, it must be interesting yeah. to yeah. construct those things yeah and they the, both of those daughters both my colleague abby alcon's daughter and my daughter both vividly remember those experiences of being in our lab and being messed with you know <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, they were being subjected to low-level stress. So I suppose the point of the phrase dandelion is that those kids are relatively robust and can survive in varying conditions. Yeah. That's the the point of that. Because yeah. obviously I'm sort of sitting here trying to work out, firstly, what I am. Yeah. And secondly, what my two daughters are. Um, yeah. And it's... It, it may not be immediately obvious, I suppose, because like sensitivity and volatility, that they, I suppose they present themselves in in different ways. Yeah, and you, you also get to know more about that with each individual child as that little girl or little boy grows older. Yes, yes. Now, um... Tom, what were you saying about like the, what are your concerns with the current political uh, environment and how it may be the macro influence of on that of stresses and trauma for children socially? What what, what are your concerns and interests in that? Well, um, at the level of human populations, at the level of societies, rather than individual children and individual families. Um, I think what we now know is that within human populations, the childhood populations, children are essentially the orchids of the human family. Um, They are the most sensitive. Um, My environmental health colleagues have this saying that if we could make the world safe for children, we'd make it safe for everybody. And that's because kids are just more environmentally sensitive, both to the, the physical aspects of the environment, but also also to the social and relational and uh, emotional aspects of the environment. So that's one thing that, that um, I think there are profound implications of that realization for things like um, policies of separating families at the southern border, um, which is happening not far from here. Um, it's a travesty, um, and it's something that never should have happened. It now is continuing to happen, and I think it's a, a stain on the the uh, the goodness and the well-being and the the reputation of our country that that has been allowed to to stand. And it's only one of a bunch of different policies that have come into the, come into being that that. Um, that rather than supporting and and uh, encouraging children, um, undermines children, undermines their development, undermines their health. But the the larger point, I think, Russell, is that I think we're living 
not just in the United States, but worldwide in a an era of kind of resurgent disregard for the powerless and the the people that um, that are kind of experienced or referred to as the lowly. Um, you know, the the defenseless people within our midst are uh, bullied and mocked. Um, refugees are turned away. Um, the the people that we might regard as the least of these. Um, are people who are at, at, at best ignored and at worst um, actively subjugated and, and, uh, and hurt. So you feel like that we are creating and uh, implementing systems that are either deliberately or unconsciously traumatic and creating a sick and damaged society. Yep. And that the um, like, I suppose the reason that the it's the the way that the uh, fam familial separation has been covered in the manner that it has is because you think it is uniquely abominable, even in a time of abomination. Yeah, that's right. And I think you know the the distinction within childhood populations between orchid children and dandelion children kind of brings to the foreground the fact that. We differ as human beings in our in our vulnerability to the things that a society does to us and brings to us, and I think that not only in North American society but really all around the world now we're seeing um, this kind of disregard for uh, those people who are the most defenseless, uh, the most vulnerable, um, uh, least likely to to benefit from the the good things that a society can bring to them. Why do you think that's happening? Well, that's a, boy, that's a great question. And I don't know that I have an answer for it. Um, but I see it all, I think we all see it all over the world. Um, I don't know whether it, it is kind of the, you know, the natural ebb and flow of, uh, of human value and human sensitivity, um, or whether it's, you know, can be traced to some, primary individual cause. I certainly don't think that just the advent of this particular administration in this particular country is necessarily the the final common pathway for all of these other um, changes. It can't be. It can At least historically, it wouldn't seem like that, because even if you take something as severe and obvious as national socialism in the 30s, this is the, 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 now with some perspective, we can see the 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 you know the economic precursors that laid the foundations for that and like each, for, I mean, each individual phenomenon whether it's the sort of the anti-Semitism or the, the sort of the militarism like in a way you can track the antecedents of that now with a little time so it's not frequent that uh, what that one historical figure or one political moment as you say can provide a common pathway from an emotional perspective tom i sense that people become less compassionate towards people more vulnerable when they themselves sense they have no compassion to give when there's a climate of almost a kind of a ubiquity of fear a sense of impoverishment a sense of like that that's what i feel like and having lived somewhat in your country but mostly in the uk that when people when the sort of the i say dominant population but i mean that in the sense of say the majority indigenous population 
start to feel threatened and when there's and often that comes at a time when there's an accompanying rhetoric of nationalism condemnation of foreigners but like you know but i feel like a key component of that is that that sort of dominant political force needs to uh, not not the political social force need to uh, feel need to feel neglected and under threat i think that's a good condition to create who gives a shit if them families are getting separated at the borders or who cares if we're turning back those refugees because i feel like people don't feel that they've got anything to give because they themselves are stressed and uh, and vulnerable yeah yeah speculatively i mean these are basically things i'm guessing which seems absurd talking to a man who gives little lemon drops and that to children (laughs) to make absolutely sure (laughs) that they're a dandelion child (laughs) but like it it, it interests me that you know obviously like we 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 could talk a little about why we think it's happening and and then uh, what do you think the solution is where where can it be resourced from when we live at a time when people or at least when the public discourse lacks basic compassion a time of polarity how do you think those kind of stories and those kind of moments shift and change is there anything you can tell us from your work and observations well you asked me a moment ago what are the kind of parental strategies that that some parents use to to protect children um, against these kind of um, assaults that they experience in their lives and I I must say I think that that um, the way that these things begin to change and to move toward a more peaceable and and uh, encouraging uh, way of being within societies is that it begins to change at the level of individual families and individual relationships. Um, there's a in in one of the chapters of the book, there is a um, kind of a set of observations of, of six strategies that um, that parents use um, in our experience to protect and encourage. Uh, orchid children that they recognize one way or another that they have within their family. They might might not have called them orchid children, um, but they they recognize that these these kids are more sensitive and vulnerable within their families. So um, the six sort of strategies that we have uh, encountered among these families, um, and these have the highly convenient characteristic of being the mnemonic orchid, O-R-C-H-I-D. All right. <laughs> so the O is for um, one's own true self. Um, I think that one of the principal tasks of parenting is being able to essentially see into a young, blossoming child and recognize who that little girl or little boy is and allowing that one true self to come forward, um, to be manifest. Um, The R is for um, routines. Um, I think routines and kind of sameness from day to day, week to week is good for all children. Really? Um, but I think it's particularly important for orchid children. They thrive on this kind of routinization of life within the family. And it might be, you know, eating dinner at night. It might be um, going to church or synagogue or mosque um, every week at the same time. Any of these kinds of uh, 
kinds of routine, repetitive uh, family behaviors seem to be helpful. Um, the C is for uh, the Latin word caritas, um, which means steadfast love. Um, all children need and are thirsty for and absorb uh, the love that we give them as parents. But orchid children just are profoundly affected by uh, the kind of uh, steadfast, dependable love and care that their parents um, give them. And that is manifested in a whole variety of different ways. Um, what like, like what's the, you know, for steadfast and consistent love, what's a good, uh, what are some good examples of that? Well, um, you know, I, I I have this belief that uh, you, you know we we in, within our culture here, we talk about this thing of called quality time. Um, I don't think it exists. I don't. I think it's a cultural myth, um, because the the things that the, the really important important powerful moments um, between parent and child happen at these awkward weird moments when you're you know you've got six kids in the back of the car going to a soccer game or um, you're giving a three-year-old a bath at night. Um, when you least expect it, um, some question comes up or some kind of connection between father and daughter or between, you know, mother and son or whatever, some kind of connection happens there that, that is powerful and cannot be planned. Um, so I think this idea that we can kind of plan and, and uh, choreograph uh, important moments between parents and children is is uh, probably not right. Yes, thank you. We're at H now yeah, in the H, ORCID acronym. H is for human differences. Um, there are lots of families where, for convenience sake, the differences between children are obscured and kind of blended. Um, what do you mean if you've got a very a, a robust and loud child and a shy child? Well, it's, yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, I think the best families and the best parents recognize that it doesn't matter how many kids you have. Each one of those kids is, a, is a, an individual creature <laughs> that you are caring for and that has to be cared for in a very idiosyncratic and individual way. You probably understand that from your own experience with your daughters yes they're two people and they've come into well i suppose one obvious distinction in the environment is one came into an environment in which there were no children and one came into an environment in which there was a child already so already there's massive variation even when you would consider yeah. you know my wife and i are the same people and our first child she feels like at least superficially and I, I, I mean capable of judging how much of this I'm projecting seems to be a more assertive and like we look now at videos of when like Peggy our younger child is like 11 months and Mabel is two and a half we look at videos of when Pe when Mabel was 11 months already she was different a sort of a different sense of presence and Peggy is more 
gentle sort of slightly sort of one and like it's what's particularly sort of challenging for us as parents is like maybe with this strong character that should throw stuff at peggy she's phys- she's loving but she's also very physical yep. with peggy and we're aware of this oh no mabel please and i both of us i think my wife is better than i do it better than i am but like find discipline like how do you manage that how do you know how do you have a conversation with a two and a half year old about don't throw things at your sister we we can't let you do that yeah and you know those tropes of parenting that i query the undergirding of of you're going to have to go in your room and when you're ready to apologize you can come back like you know that what the only thing i'd like know is try not to be coming from my own emotional agitation like you know that i cut like if my initial feeling when she when mabel punches me in the face or hits me with a harmonica for yeah. one recent example <laughs> like that when i first saw like ah you little boy like, yeah. you know, like i have yeah, to yeah. overcome that yeah. before i re-engage with her yeah you know um so i try to approach her rationally and lovingly and i'm thinking you know that one true self thing i really i'm really trying to see who she who is. is yeah like, you know what is it you're trying to communicate who are you who are you in there yeah. you know and i like i like to say that no two children are raised in the same family i mean you just it, you can't help it um peggy and mabel are going to be raised in two different families um, that just depends upon the fact that one was born before the other, the temperamental differences that they bring to the family, the way in which Peggy may evoke certain kinds of things from you or your wife and Mabel does not or evokes different things. All of those those things, I think, really um, make it different for each for each child. Have, um, we're, we're just, so human differences, acknowledging their differences and, the, and how distinct they are from one another, yeah. and that they're gonna. Rec- we can't, for convenience, say this. Say this is our standardized approach. Yeah. To- I mean, it would be easier, wouldn't it? I mean, it, it's uh, a one size fits all approach to parenting is so much simpler, but it just doesn't work. Yeah, right. It's a constantly protein altering, yep. amorphic relationship. Exactly. And it changes with development. It changes as a child goes from one stage to another. Right. That's the other thing. I keep thinking, okay, this is how we handle it. Oh, she's not doing that anymore. She's doing this. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's, yeah exactly. I can't believe it's caught on as a system having kids. It's so difficult. Like, <laughs> how is, why are people not going, banning it? <laughs> it's so difficult. Why do we tolerate this? Why do we put up with this from these people? They come into our houses. I used to do what I liked. Yeah. And I didn't think I had enough time to do that. Exactly. And, and you sh- got, got along just fine with your wife. <laughs> yeah. Without anybody else being there. I'm a husk. <laughs> um, what's the, what's the I stand for? Then? The I stands for imaginative play. Oh, right. Well, I'm doing well with that. A lot of, a lot of the, People sort of think of play as kind of childish, um, trivial behavior. It isn't. Um, I, I think of play as the child's holiday from reality. And it's the, it's the, the, the part of life where a child learns how to interact with other children. Um, she learns much more about who she is in the course of playing. So... I just think that parents need to know that the provision of plenty of time and availability and encouragement in play is just as important as anything else, especially for uh, these sensitive orchid children. Well, I'm doing okay there because what I do is uh, like 
I she at the moment has a coterie of imaginary friends who it seems from her manner are yeah. her subordinates and possibly even children and she workshops stuff that's happened to her like with these children so she's like oh like uh, ember is sad because mummy is going to the gym <laughs> like stuff yeah like, and it's it's no coincidence that one of the principal ways that we that we actually do therapy with little children is by playing with them, asking them to, to play up certain kinds of uh, circumstances. And they, they can do that beautifully. And, they, and it's therapeutic for kids who are working through um, some kind of uh, problem that they're experiencing. I suppose it makes sense that they wouldn't have the facility for abstract discourse. Well, in that moment, I was feeling actually like I wasn't being heard. Like that's sort of quite conceptual. Whereas to be able to go, oh, poor Ember or Osh or Oddie, to name the other two, uh, they're, they're angry. Osh is angry because she doesn't want to go to her room. Yeah. You know, so yeah, I see that it's more, whilst to us we would regard it as frivolous play, to them it's a sort of... A, kind of a, re a revivified literal yeah. experience or a rehearsal a rehearsal yeah yeah how 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 do, does that come with older kids when that kind of rehearsal oh, I think, play yeah i think this continues um you know obviously the play of a 10 year old is very different from the play of a 2 year old um but i think there still is this capacity for imaginative uh transporting um, into a kind of different realm where, where that child can work out uh, the things that are conflictive and bothering him or her. Mm -hmm. In your uh, uh, laboratory studies, is play something you've investigated with these children? And, and how do you do that? Well, we, we try to make it so that these, this series of stressful challenges that we put to them feel like play. Um, it's not exactly play, but we try to do it in a way that is um, familiar and easy for the age of the child that we're testing at that point in time. So it's, a, it's at, at its best, it's a playful um, experience for the, for the child. Do you ever wear a pirate's hat? <laughs> as much as possible. <laughs> yeah, because one of the things I notice as well is that they reject the, like often they will reject the parameters of a, like a situation that you give them, which I think my, I would guess, and I speak for her, that my wife finds harder, e.g. my wife is much more likely to go, right, we're going to sit down with these papers and crayons and paints and we're going to create this thing. And my two-year-old will tear it up and throw it on the ground. Uh -huh. I much more go, okay, so what's going to happen? Like I tried to follow her and just do voices and allow her to yeah. do whatever she's going to do, yeah. uh, which I think is good in terms of play. And it also doesn't, I, I don't experience as a parent rejection because I've not su suggested to her anything. But when it comes to discipline, when it comes to, when it comes to her, you know, what I find hard is like when I myself personally, Tom, don't agree with some forms of social regulation, having to pass those on to my children. Oh, we don't do that. That's that's not your property. Uh, These are their rules. Especially like, when the, the, the form of social regulation is being espoused by your spouse. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah, yeah. that's when it's really hard is when you when you your wife feels differently about how to approach 
uh, a certain situation. And that's where, you know, the, the goodness and the dependability and the, the depth of those parenting relationships are, are so important. What's happened to you, what has happened to you as a parent when you've been applying your academic understanding? My assumption would be that the introduction of emotion, obviously love, has meant that it's sort of challenging to use those sort of techniques and even that understanding. Has that been the case? Ask it again. Well, say like you love your kids. Are you able to use all these techniques or does the love mean, oh God, it's all been nullified by me loving them. I can't use any of my knowledge and understanding. It's all redundant ashes in my mouth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's certainly, a, I think for people like me um, and the kind of work that I've done, it, it certainly is a potential danger of, of getting too much into your own head and, uh, you know, sort of approaching all parenting dilemmas with this kind of cognitive uh, frame of reference. Um, you know, so much I think of parenting is um, good intuition. Um, it's memory of what was characteristic of your own upbringing and, and how your parents um, brought you up. Um, and it's it's uh, it's these really important and good differences between uh, between partners, between parenting partners, um, where one has a certain take on a situation and the other has a, another take on a situation. And working through that, I think you come to a place where you, you have a better resolution than either one independently. How, how do you do that? Talk. <laughs> you in a successful marriage? Like yeah. A, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. And like you've... And did you have conflicts with raising your children? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I, I mean, my wife and I, <laughs> we, I mean, now it's more about grandsons than it is about our children. But um, but even now, you know, years later, our kids are, one's turning 40 um, this next summer and the other is like 37. Um, you know, we still debate about how we should respond to this particular situation with this child versus another situation with another child. So it's that that it's another place where steadfast love seems to um, be incredibly important because Caritas. It, that for steadfast love is what's important. Yeah, I think I think it's the steadfast love between two parents yeah, that allows them to, you know, continue effectively rearing kids who moment by moment become increasingly complex and diverse and um, you you have to really work through those things to do it well. What's the D in the uh, ORCID acronym? The D is, uh, it's, the, it's the hardest <laughs> of the six strategies. It, it, it stands for danger. It refers to um, how ORCID children have recurrent experiences of endangerment. Um, I, I mentioned how they they have trouble moving into novel circumstances. So let, let's say there's a birthday party that they've mm. been invited to and um, they want to go, but all, most of the kids they're not going to know because the kids come from another school from the one that the 
birthday child um, goes to. And, you know, I think inevitably parents come to this point where we have to either, we have to walk this fine line between, on the one hand, um, being too ready to accept the child's fearfulness and allowing them to back off and not, not encounter that fearful thing, whatever it is, maybe a birthday party. But on the other hand, also not backing away from, under some circumstances, nudging them forward into finding that they can actually thrive and, and triumph in those circumstances that they initially feel endangered and fearful of. Um, that's, a, that's a very tough line to walk. And I think for parents who have an orchid child, it becomes particularly compelling and hard um, because they're just all the time trying to figure out, okay, is this one of these circumstances where I nudge her forward or is this one where I allow her to withdraw? Yeah, that seems like it would be difficult to evaluate. Does anything in the clinical studies offer you guidance there? Like when you're evaluating sensitivity through sort of measurable means, how does that um, transpose into real life circumstances? Oh, this kid don't like having to recite their numbers back. Don't push them into going to a swimming lesson if they don't want to. Yeah, well, it, it, it came, very much came into play as we were developing our stress reactivity protocol because there were some things that, you know, that kids just couldn't do. Um, this, you know, we started this 30 years ago and the, the adult literature on stress reactivity evoked stress reactivity by having adults put their hand in a bucket of ice water. Well, putting your hand in a bucket of ice water is intensely painful. So, you know, we started by, we didn't kind of realize that, and we started by having these little five-year-olds sticking their hands in buckets of ice water. Well, they just wouldn't do it. <laughs> so, you know, we had to, we had to figure out what, was, what were the things that we could ask them to do that were sufficiently evocative of these stress response systems, um, but not so evocative that they ran out of the room or cried or refused to do whatever the task was. Um, so... I think I think those are the kinds of uh, uh, choices that we have to make. It makes me uh, like it's interesting to contemplate the degree of objectivity that I imagine is demanded of anyone working in research science in something that must be so emotionally engaging and complex because it's not lab rats it's not plants or molecules under a microscope it's little children not wanting to put their hands in an ice bucket it must yeah. one would imagine that this is going to work on you emotionally a great deal yeah and especially when your guinea pig is your daughter <laughs> <laughs> you know it's um that's you know obviously there are there are potential downsides of using your daughter to test out a stress reactivity protocol but on the other hand it's there are some utility to it too because it means that you're going to be really sensitive to uh, to what what is too much when i'm listening to you describe the conditions uh, and um traits that you use to assess orchid children dandelion children my um, own rubric of 
understanding is the is is addiction and it's understood that addiction in a sense is a response to a lack of connection a sense of alienation and emotional needing and that the sort of chemical dependency or behavioral addictions such as gambling uh-huh. compulsive sexual behaviors compulsive eating behaviors are a means and method to regulate these kind of trauma responses that I think you're describing. I would imagine that there's a great deal of corollary and most addicts that you talk to seem to suggest perhaps that's because of the trends and the origins of psychoanalysis and the way that psychoanalysis presents childhood as being, you know, obviously the, 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 formative period for these kind of behaviors but um yeah it seems to me that what you're talking about when you say orchid you're i I, i'm not at all i wouldn't be at all surprised to see an overlap for people that have developed addiction i wouldn't i would not either um a a colleague of mine uh who's an internist at ucsf uh, runs a clinic for hiv positive women and um he's a very insightful sensitive guy who over the years has realized that there are a set of common uh, pasts um, that these women have, that, the, that they, they tend to be women who have had um, a period of homelessness or they've had ad- addiction as a problem. Um, they've had, uh, uh, and they, they all seem to have had some kind of a common uh, set of really traumatizing events that happened early in their life so that um so your um colleague while treating hiv in women necessarily recognized that that there was just a, a a lot of comparable trauma in the lives of his subjects exactly this early common pathway Gabor Maté, you know, who's an addiction specialist, he works a lot in Vancouver. In oh, Vancouver. yeah, yeah, I, I do know his work, yeah. Yeah, he's wicked. He said that he'd never met, like, a, an intravenous sex worker drug addict that has not had yeah. trauma, like, you know, particular yeah. types of trauma, specifically abuse. So I suppose that refers to your earlier point about, like, if we're creating social conditions where large numbers of people are experiencing trauma, where we're creating a kind of cross crucible of... Yeah unpleasantness you know this stuff's going to exponentially grow exactly that's right yeah why did you get into doing this then why did i get into studying the the uh, stuff yeah well that's that's an interesting question and um you know how they there's this saying out there that every photograph is a self-portrait um by which people mean that everything that a photographer chooses to photograph is somehow a reflection of the way that he or she frames the world, the things that he chooses to to photograph, the way that it's cast and the kind of frame that it's put in. Um, it turns out that for me, there was, there was just such a personal aspect of this that I, I have to say I was not really aware of until maybe... 10, 12 years ago, um, which is that um, I had a sister um, who had um, a life very different from my own. Um, uh, we were 
in our, our first 10 years, we were incredibly close playmates. We were matched in temperament and interests and imagination and so on. We were kind of each other's best friend. And then as we started into adolescence and young adulthood, um, there was this dramatic divergence in our in our two life paths. Um, I've had a life that I, I can only characterize as kind of embarrassingly uh, good fortune. Um, I've had, you know, I have a 45-year marriage. I've got these two great kids and four uh, grandsons. I've had a professional career that's been productive and rewarding. My sister, as she entered that second decade of her life, um, first of all, developed a chronic biomedical disease um, and was put to bed for a year. Um, and as she emerged from that, she began having a whole series of increasingly uh, potent uh, mental health symptoms. And by the age of 20, uh, she had a diagnosis of schizophrenia. Um, she was a brilliant person. Um, and while she was a graduate student at Harvard, um, she had a, an unplanned pregnancy. And she delivered a, a birth-asphyxiated child who uh, became pretty profoundly disabled. Um, so I, I never had really, until maybe 10, 15 years ago, put these things together, my interest in differences in stress reactivity and my intrigue with my own family of origin and my experience with my sister, but I, but I think they're, they're powerfully um, related. Uh, I think uh, even though we were two kids conceived of the same parents and reared in the same home, um, uh, in the same community, you know, just down the way from where we are right now, um, I think that the kind of uh, trauma that became endemic within our family, uh, I had an ability to kind of shrug off in some way, to let it run off my back and to move on to other things. And I think my sister was an orchid child, and I think that it um, much more profoundly affected her. And um, she, she has had a very troubled life. When did you recognize that your impetus to understand stress reactivity was that personal? And why did you recognize it? Well, I think it was, I think it was probably from reflection on um, the kind of counterfactual of what my sister's life could have been. Mm -hmm. um, she... Uh, You know, if anything, she was smarter and brighter and more creative than I have been. Um, and yet, she devolved into this um, this path of, of uh, mental disorder and terrible discomfort and tragedy upon tragedy upon tragedy. Um, I think she could have been an extraordinary person. And so when I began seeing these orchid kids who had these sort of binary outcomes of either just brilliantly um, successful and healthy versus, you know, terribly disordered and 
um, and frail in all kinds of ways. Um, it began reminding me of my sister Mary. So, yes, well, that's very beautiful. You want to help sensitive and damaged people to get the best possible outcome. Yeah, but I, you know, Russell, I cannot claim <laughs> that I started into my uh, program of research with that as the objective or with even thinking that this was any, it was in any way about my sister. Um, it was only after we had been doing this for probably 15 or 20 years that I realized, oh, this is really, this is just a recapitulation of what I grew up with. Yes. Was it stressful and traumatic for you to be in proximity to that suffering? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because presumably your parents felt responsible and you imagine it seems like you feel a bit guilty. Yeah, well, my, you know, my dad died very early on when he was just 62. And my mom's way of coping with my sister's life was essentially to keep it at arm's length. So it fell really to to my brother and me um, to deal with, um, you know, the, the difficulties of Mary's life. Yes. In your case, by doing 30 years of research <laughs> into stress reactivity and yeah, trying motiv- to understand Yeah, motivated it. by obscure reasons, you know. <laughs> How... Well, wonderful and poetic that something so um, meticulous and and by its nature about the observation of truth could be heralded and carried by an unconscious motivation to resolve something so personal. Yeah. It's very, very beautiful. So what we're going to do about, uh, I would like to know some more practical things, if I may, about bringing up my pain in the ass kids. (laughs) (laughs) You haven't seen anything yet. (laughs) Oh, no, because they're just two and a half. I know sometimes I do think that. I think, what am I going to do when they start dragging me into social situations? Because I don't like going to birthday parties. When, like, I first took Mabel to other kids' parties and people touched her and that, I'm super sensitive. She's at a Montessori playgroup here, and I, like... um, only the other day said don't pick her up if she doesn't want you to pick her don't pick her up because you want to pick her up pick her up if she wants to be picked up you know you see so much people motivated by their own unconscious requirements like oh i'd like to pick up a little kid they're cute who gives a fuck leave that kid alone (laughs) you know like that you know like you said yeah the orchids of our society i'm very aware of now of the sensitivity of children and that we should be continually responding to their requirements what well, tell me what you can teach me about uh, discipline and uh, parenting strategies please <laughs> all of it well you know as i said earlier these these six strategies that we've noticed are so effective mm. in uh in the lives of, of orchid children, um, it, they are they are really the same strategies that really good parents and really good teachers use in the family, in the home, in the classroom. Um, so we've got. I mean, I, I was really listening to that, and I wrote it down. One true self. That's I'm looking right into their eyes, and I'm really trying to understand them. Routines. That also. That was when I was really starting to think that what you teach and uh, have learned. Um, relates to addiction because most addicts require a lot of routine yeah. Yeah. Um, 
Caritas, steadfast love. That's not right. Maybe that's an area I can do some work. I'm going to put an asterisk next to that because <laughs> I can be a bit, uh, what do I want to say, inconsistent. Like, uh, like oh, I'm just going to wander off now with my own, disappearing my own imagination. That's like consistency, right? Yes. Steadfast. Steadfast and love. Um, that it That it is... It's this deep, that you've experienced, you've obviously experienced, this deep sense of caring about commitment to these little girls that are, that are just so central in your life. And you, my guess is you never would have imagined how central they could be in your life until yeah. they came along. It unraveled what I thought I was. Yeah, exactly. I completely recomposed myself. Yeah. It's, why, it's why we can never tell a friend who is about to have a baby we can't really tell them what it's going to be like it's just it is so transformative that it's one of those experiences that are that's impossible to convey to another person one of my friends is about to have a baby and i just said to him like he was talking about a bunch of other stuff i was you just enjoy this time mate because like for three months <laughs> it's going to be very different <laughs> well i would say you enjoy this time that you're oh, in. Oh, no, you're hitting me with that. <laughs> because just wait until those two little girls turn 12 and 14. Um, then you're going to have to fasten your seatbelt. Right. Now, you're the <laughs> professor of behavior, and I'm just some guy. But, but I'd like to say that I thought it might be easier because then I would be able to talk to them. Well, go. it is easier in that sense, but it's... It's so much deeper and so much more complex. Is it? Yeah, as they as they move into, I mean that, you know, that is really a phase of, of life, a season of childhood, where that that one true self just comes on with, a vengeance. You know, <laughs> it just really blossoms forth, um, and you can see it vividly. What about when they decide that they have to kill the image of you, to, in order to achieve adulthood? What happens then? Yeah, I'm not going to like that. That's one. Of, no, you're not. That's, <laughs> <laughs> and that's one of the tasks that we have. What happened with? How did you deal with that then? When your parent, your children reach maturation and like that, well, we're off now. Was that? Have you been? Was it very, very painful? Uh, yeah, I'm. I'm the way I dealt with it. Uh -huh. I moved away. <laughs> <laughs> Where'd you go? I went to Canada. <laughs> <laughs> My wife and I, um, a number of years ago... We're going when, to Canada. This when is our, too much. <laughs> when our, our daughter, you know, our lovely orchid daughter, was really herself struggling with, you know, how to, how to move into her own adult life and onto her own path. Um, she was... She, she struggled with that. And... Um, we didn't move to Canada because of that, but it turned out that our moving to Canada was exactly what she needed. She needed to have us go off and do our next chapter of life so that she could do hers. Mm. And um, even though it was, it was intensely painful, it's one of the hardest things I've ever done as a parent was to, to move away from my daughter who was struggling with with life and how to get on with life and it was terribly painful for her um you know we we touched base we we had phone calls every single week um, every month one of us would come back down here from vancouver um 
and be with her in some manner. Um, but it was really, it was exactly what she needed. Given your origin, uh, like the sort of the original impetus of your work, you know, the, your, your um, discovery of your how it related to your sister and her trauma and difficulties, and now when you talk about the sensitivities of your own orchid child, it, it, is orchid child, if not entirely synonymous with certainly adjacent to potential mental health challenges? Oh, yeah. It is, absolutely. Um, you know, I think one of the characteristics of, of orchid children is that they they do have this vulnerability, this um, almost biological predisposition or bias toward being vulnerable to depression and anxiety. Um, they are kids who can easily end up with a mood disorder of, of some kind. Um, that's... That's the bad, worrisome news. The good news is that they can also thrive and become absolutely brilliant, creative people. My, my daughter, who was struggling to figure out um, where she was going, is now a brilliant young nurse at Oakland Children's Hospital, oh. taking care of, you know, really sick kids. Um, that's, you know, that's thrilling to see. Yes, yes. And if we think that, right, okay, one true self, connect with them, make sure there's routines, caritas and steadfast, consistent love, uh, human differences, acknowledging that that even this methodology is going to have to be quite um, protein uh, to, in order to cope. Imaginative play, no problem. That's, uh, I'm always glad when I arrive at the eye. And danger, the, the way that you relate to the challenges they have, when to move to Vancouver yeah. and when to... How to deal with fearfulness. How yeah. they would feel for fearfulness. Have you can, got anything to add on the subject of discipline? Because it just happens to be where I currently am struggling most. And do you think when children need a poo, they t- if they're constipated, they become behaviorally difficult? <laughs> Professor. <laughs> <laughs> now, there is a profound question. <laughs> well, I, I mean, doesn't, don't, don't we experience problems when we're constipated yeah yeah we get kind of yeah like, agitated yeah yeah so the answer to the latter question is yes <laughs> <laughs> and what do you do with discipline with discipline you apply all of these things to that yes to the subject this is a universal tool a rosetta stone yeah of uh in uh, like a discourse with your child yeah and you know as you alluded to a moment ago there are times when, you know, the parent interrupting and uh, l- not letting the child do something that he or she wants to do, um, that can be very conflictive. Um, but, you know, the, the phrase that I've encouraged parents to use over and over again is, um, I love you too much to let you do that. Well, oh, that's nice. I'm going to enjoy using that. Yeah. I love you too much. To and, do you know, I think the other thing is that, that, you know, little kids, the age of your daughters, that they are and will be, um, they, they really need um, to not be allowed to do everything that they want. And, in fact, it is an experience of, of love in a way. Um, to know that there's somebody bigger than me that's not going to let me do anything that I want. 
Yeah, that's a reassuring idea, the sort of the patriarchal deity, you know, like uh, sort of the authoritative figure. I, I recognise that, that there's more to parenting than just facilitating their giddy whims and wills, that, yeah. that I think of that often, the term parent in relation to parenthesis, yeah. that I bracket them yeah, that's and very hold good. them. I, yeah, parents, yeah. That's very good. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Carry them around, hold yeah. them. Limit. <laughs> Limit. <laughs> yeah. 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 Because otherwise, what are they going to do? She, Mabel's got some terrible schemes, dreadful, dreadful ideas. It's very, it's out. very scary when you're two and two years old to, you know, to suspect that there may not be any limits to my behavior, that I actually can do anything that I want to do. Yeah, right. We're doing them a huge favor by letting them know. Because yeah. you, when you watch that ego form, the potency of the will, it, they must, they feel like I am God. Yeah. I do whatever I want. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and there's, so much, there's quite a lot of time in the imaginative play where Mabel's going, Daddy, sit down, go over there. Talks to me like I'm a baby, talks to me like I'm a dog. I'm imaginative play going along with that whole thing. Subtly teaching her that she's some Aussie man, dias, <laughs> tyrannical force <laughs> that can achieve whatever she wants in the yeah, world. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to watch out for that. Well, let me just check, Professor, that I've asked you everything. Uh, is there anything we want to add on inherited trauma? Then, uh, like, uh, do you, is that something you're interested in? Of, of theories well, or opinions on? Um, we really haven't talked about, you know, how the individual biology of the child and the environment that the child's being brought up in, how those two things actually come together to affect outcomes. And we, we now believe that the way that happens is actually um, through a part of our biology that's called the epigenome. Um, epi meaning on top of. So it's, the, it's a matrix of chemical tags that actually lies on top of our genome and controls the degree to which individual genes are expressed or silenced um, within us. Um, so it's a, it's a powerful new um, piece of the science of all this, that it, that it seems to be the way that uh, biology and environment actually uh, come together. It's the nexus point between genetic variation and environmental variation. Wow, that's the point where environment and heredity and biology are interfacing. That's the That's place right. where they come together. And the, the reason I bring that up in the context of the question that you just asked is that it does appear that, um, at least in experimental animals, it's not yet clear for sure in humans but at least in experimental animals, the trauma of one generation can be handed down to another and another and another via this epigenetic, these epigenetic mechanisms because uh, the epigenetic marks that occur on the genome as a result of trauma seem to be able to be passed along um, from one generation to the next. Has that been chemically tracked or behaviorally at this point? It can be either. It can be either. Um, Certainly, there are uh, differences in behavior that that uh, the epigenetic marks of a of an offspring rat, a rat pup, um, their their behavior toward their litters that to come can be affected by um, the way that their mother uh, uh, took care of them in the in their neonatal period. Bloody hell! Yeah. 
Yeah, that's a wow. These are there are amazing things to consider, um, Professor. Thank you for coming down and teaching us all of this. I I'm really grateful to you. It's a very beautifully presented and explained um, theory and lots of uh, I think easily understandable techniques. Thank you very much. Thank you, Russell. I, it's a privilege to have the conversation. Thank you. Now I'm acting as if this is the end of the podcast when in reality what I'd like to do now is take you to my house and put my children <laughs> in a room with you. Why is that one doing that? Poke it with a stick. Give it a lemon. It's been doing that for ages. I can tell you're going to do just fine as a parent. <laughs> Thank you. Well, Jen, audience member number one, what, <laughs> what, what do you think? I really liked it. It was nice to learn some stuff. Yeah, it was lovely. It's nice when there is a sort of a clinical research background around something as as empirically necessary as child rearing and understanding. Yeah. Children. I mean, that's where I live. I live in. What oh, the fuck's it doing that? For? I don't understand. Yeah. Either. That's yeah, where yeah. I'm at. Yeah, know? yeah, yeah. And all of us. So everyone, most the most important person in everyone's life is their children. Yeah, yeah. Not Jenny because she's too young. And did you did you <laughs> confirm that you're an orchid, Jenny? I think I'm an orchid. Yeah. <laughs> I would say Jenny's an orchid. <laughs> You're an orchid. Some rare strain. <laughs> um, I would still sort of think I'm, I mean, the, the thing is with, as well though, is that, that I present initially as quite extrovert, but I would say that that in itself is a kind of, the persona is a defense, like a, an evolved defense. I mean, it must be interesting to see how behaviors develop and evolve. Like, like personally, I suppose that it wasn't safe to be like a quiet, introverted little boy. And I was rewarded for exhibitive behavior yeah. quite young. And it's the first time I ever felt any kind of power. Yeah. So like, I, but you wouldn't be doing the things that you're doing and thinking the things that you're thinking, unless there was a, a lot of reflection and internal life in there i see right i mean yes don't you think i yes i do professor and then it's and i've thought a lot about sensitivity uh, like in, in prior to ha having your theories explained to me that that there is a sort of a perverse um you know sort of um i don't know paradoxical like sort of or dichotomy to to um, sensitivity that it sometimes can present as fear, as isolation, as separateness, as an inability to communicate, socialize. Mm -hmm. But if you find the correct environmental conditions, and I suppose that's what you're saying as parents we must provide, then, oh, suddenly this is useful yeah. to have this sensitivity. Yeah. It's, it's permeability for, for better or for worse. Permeability, right. Because one of the things I find myself sharing is I overreact to external stimuli, whether negative or positive. Someone gives me some praise and some compliment or a moderately good thing happens and I'm like, yeah, this is brilliant. I'm going to save the world. Uh, something like a little bit negative. Oh, well, what's the point? I can't cope anymore. Yeah. So permeability, yeah. it gets in. It gets in. And whatever's out there gets in. Whether And like you would say that that's even physical phenomena toxins for yeah, example I, I think it probably is not not all forms of certain there are certain toxins of course that are going to affect us irrespective of whether we're an orchid or a dandelion like lead or you know some of the ptbs <laughs> ah! yeah yeah uranium yeah <laughs> yeah yeah, oh, thank you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Tom. Remember to let me know what you thought of it on Instagram. Tag me at True Russell Brand or tweet me at Rusty Rockets with the hashtag under the skin. If you want uh, Tom's book, uh, the 
Dandelion and the Orchid, I believe is the title, isn't it? Then you should uh, get that. Bluebird Books, damn fine publishers. Have a listen to some old ones like Jack Monroe talking about politics, Professor Barry Smith on the science of our senses, Ruby Wax on mental health and Kahindi Andrews on, on race. I'm doing two stand-up shows in Calgary on the 15th of June. Come and see me there if you're in Canada or near Canada or an easy flight from Canada. There's a show at six and one at nine. It'll be a proper funny show and all proceeds go to Fresh Start Recovery Centre. Russellbrand.com for tickets. I'll be doing some more live shows in LA. Go to russellbrand.com for that. And if you want to see me in Pasadena on June the 2nd, you should go to Roman's Bookstore in Pasadena and uh, have a look at my social media feed for more info. All right. I love you. See you later. Keep listening to Under the Skin from Luminary Media.